Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate that. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be in Texas. I'm a Texas boy. I was born and raised in Amarillo. I actually lived, did some little time outside of Austin and outside of Dallas. So it's good to be here. And uh, man, we love your pastor, my wife, Lori, and I. I uh, just think so much of Pastor Mac and Julie. You know, I've been around a lot of leaders over 20 years of ministry, and to be around uh, leaders that have such tremendous integrity and gifting as well as heart and passion for their church and for the community, selfless individuals who are servant-hearted is a tremendous thing, and I hope you know what a gift you have in Pastor Mac and Julie. Let's put our hands together for them. It's amazing, amazing people, and Mac Yitz has such tremendous leadership insight. You know, I'm often leaning into him for uh, just insight and wisdom as it relates to uh, leadership. Very grateful for that. And have you ever heard this guy play guitar and sing? Come on, bring it, somebody. He's, he's got the goods, man. It's all there. It's shocking. So anyway, I bring you greetings from uh, Las Vegas. Uh, there are Christians and churches in Las Vegas. We should, we should probably just start right there. I know it's a stretch. Hang with me. It's kind of like everywhere else, um, except for when it's not. Uh, I remember, you know, we, we, we pull up to a stop sign. We've been there like 13 and a half years now, my wife, Lori, and I. But, but uh, we pull up to a stop sign, and our kids were little. We're in, a, in, the, in, a, in our minivan, and there was a billboard right there. The billboard's all over Vegas. And this billboard had uh, four or five women in bikini bottoms, and it was just sort of their backsides, you know, and, and they had long hair. And it said, the hits are back. Get it, like, playing on the backside, you know, the hits are back. So we pull up to the stop sign, and then we're just sitting there, and my son says, just as innocently as he can, I think he was about seven at the time, to his sister, Emma. He says, Emma, which naked girl is your favorite? He says, mine's the one with brown hair. And I got to tell you, that's the moment as a parent where all the oxygen just gets sucked out of the vehicle, you know, and you're like, oh, my gosh, what have I done to our family, you know? Like, why, what is going on? And so Lori turns around, and she says, Ethan, we do not have favorite naked girls. It's like, okay, all right, I, I got it. So it's normal until it isn't, but, but we love it there. We feel like we're on a mission, and we're very grateful to be here, be here with you. It's very good to be back in Texas. Um, you know, I, was, I had a moment with a friend of mine a while back. We were walking in this mall area, and he did something I've never seen anybody do either before or since. Uh, we're walking, literally just kind of talking mid-conversation, actually mid-word. We just had lunch. And, and this guy, this friend of mine, threw up mid-word. No forewarning, no letting anybody know, nothing like that. Like, I'm looking at his face. He's like, anyway, so I was just, <laughs> just happened, Right? And I don't know about you, but I'm a sympathetic vomiter. Like if somebody, if somebody else throws up around me, I'm, I've got to, I'm like, ooh, you know, I'm looking the other way because it could happen at any moment. If you're that way, hang with me. I'll get through this quick. Um, so he, he just, he just like, and I don't know what you're supposed to do when somebody doesn't, no warning, no like I'm not feeling so good, lunch didn't sit well with me, none of that. Just like, boom, right there it is, you know. And um, so we just kept walking. Because what do you do when a guy just throws up mid-word? You're like, okay, anyway, so you, you, that just, you just threw up. I said, you, you, you okay? He goes, yeah, I feel a little better. <laughs> 
So I said, well, look, man, there's a restroom back the other way. Let, let's turn around and go back the other way. And, and would that be good? He's like, yeah, that'd be good. And so, so we turn around and we start going back to weather. Now there's people in the flow and I wasn't even really thinking about other people, anything. I was just thinking about my friend that was sick and this is crazy. And he just threw up and I didn't even know it was coming. And so we turned around and, and now we're in the flow moving back towards the scene of the crime. And we're about 15 or, or 20 feet away. And as soon as we turned around, I remember this woman was walking. She just walked right into the middle of that mess both feet up, right down on her backside. I mean, there was nothing I could say. There was nothing you could do. It just happened. And I mean, it was as bad as you, you think it is right now. It, it, it was bad. And, and I remember she's sitting there. I remember she, she looked down at her hands and she goes, what's this? I'm like, that's Mexican food, but let's not talk about that right now, okay? Let's just, you don't want to know what that is, you know? So she says, she's sitting there, she says, what's this? Now, I got my friend, and he's not looking so well, and we're back up now about, about parallel with her. Her friends are helping her up on her feet. And I remember looking at them thinking, you know, it's it all kind of slowed down for me. I'm like, well, you know, they've already got her on her feet. There's other people around. What possible good would it do to acknowledge that my friend did this? He's not, he could go, he's like a time bomb. He could go off at any moment. And so we just kept running. Right on walking, just like Jesus would do. <laughs> no, we just kept right on going, and then he threw up again and again. It was it was bad, right? So, but I tell you that story. <laughs> Merry Christmas, because I think it's it's a lot like life, and I think it's a lot like the holidays. Sometimes, sometimes you're just walking along, right? You're just doing your thing, you're trying to mind your own business, and then you find yourself all of a sudden, like both feet up, right down in the middle of a mess. It could be a mess somebody else made. It could be your own mess. It could be a mess they're created at work. It could just be the holiday mess. All the things that you have to do, all the things you have to get ready. And you're just kind of looking around and you're like, what is this? How did we get into this situation? It could be a, a mess financially you find yourself in or with a business partner. Some of you, you know, you're coming to the end of, of your fiscal year at work. For some of you, there's a lot going on right now. It feels like a mess. You know, all the numbers are getting crunched. Everything is sort of coming down to the wire. So in the midst of all of this, I just want to share with you when we're kind of holidays and confused, like how we can really find peace and joy over the next few weeks in the middle of whatever mess we may be dealing with. And so to do that, I'd love to look with you at the book of Philippians in the New Testament, uh, chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 4. We'll bring this up on the screen so you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 4, and we're going to talk about the habits of joy, peace, and happiness that we see the Apostle Paul just sort of showing forth in his life. So good. So check this out. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, it says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I just want to stop right there because that word always in the original language is really significant and interesting. Always actually means, wait for it, always. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Always, always. Even when, you know, the Longhorns are losing. Always. Even when, you know, the family's coming and staying too long at the holidays. Even when, you know, you're not going to get to see your family during the holidays, right? Even when things feel stressful and crazy and it's hard and the health isn't good and there's a lot of tension. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considering all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Now, it's easy to kind of wonder, like, is, Apostle, is the Apostle Paul here, is he one of those, like, was he like Mr. Rogers, you know, just sort of happy, everybody be happy, just rejoice, you know, and you're like, everybody just shut up and leave me alone, right? You know, like, drives you crazy. You ever know people like this? They're just so happy, and you're like, could you please tone it down a notch? You know, the rest of us just aren't that happy. 
you know, and you think, is that what Paul's doing? Is he just one of those guys, like, everything's all good, everything's good? And, you know, is his life in this perfect situation where things are good? Because some of us are going like, I'm hurting. My life is hard right now. Things are challenging. Even if you don't see it on the, on the surface, behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. So it's always helped to just, I think, stop when you think about the letter of Philippians. And remember that Paul wrote this letter, like many of the letters he wrote in the New Testament, from uh, a situation where he was under house arrest, uh, awaiting a hearing in Rome. So he's chained to a guard 24-7. In fact, in Ephesians and other letters, he'll talk about, remember my chains. These are the benefit of my chains. He even talks about rejoicing in his chains. You say, why would a guy rejoice in the fact that he's awaiting a hearing uh, under house arrest in Rome? Well, he says he's rejoicing because even though he's in chains, the good news of the message of God and his love is going forward. He's rejoicing because his chains are actually testifying to the validity of his faith and the message is spreading and his credibility is growing even though he's in chains. So he's finding the good even in a bad situation. In fact, he's not letting his bad situation get in the way of God's good situation in Jesus Christ for the world. All this to say, Paul says, rejoice, keep rejoicing. So whatever mess we're in today, remember, the guy that we're leaning into right now and listening to and, and kind of taking note of was facing some really tough things in his life as well. And he still says, always be full of joy. So how do we do it? How do we find that kind of joy in our life? Well, several different habits are exhibited in the next verses we're going to read. And the first one is simply this, to replace worry uh, with prayer. To replace your worry with prayer. There's a book called The How of Happiness, and they summarize the last sort of 20 years of social science research as it relates to happiness. You know, happiness really isn't a mystery anymore. I mean, uh, we, 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 people have done a tremendous amount of research and academic work on the subject of happiness over the last 20 years. So what used to be sort of mysterious, like all that, I mean, we know a lot about it now. And if I could just sort of summarize what we've learned about happiness from social science in the last 20 years, it would be in, in this graph, looks, looks like this, we'll bring this up. But in the graph, I want you to notice that it kind of breaks down this way. It says 50% of your happiness is fixed. And they, they call this your, your fixed point. Like, you know, for, for most of us, we have different, it's, 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 it's genetics, right? It's how you're wired up. For some of you, you're just, you just have a, a really high set point. And so bad thing happens in your life. You get down for a while. What happens? You bounce right back. Everything's good. Everything's cool. That's your set point. Others of you, your life's amazing. Everything's good. You're like my son right now. He's 13. Ethan, you know, how was your day? It's horrible. You know, I mean, he's like, he goes, he goes to a great school, he's got all the advantages in the world, and he really doesn't, but that's just his set point, like, that's just his personality, right? It's, it's bad, really bad, really bad. Okay, so we all have a different set point, and... Um, you acknowledge, and then this feels true to me. I don't know if it feels true to you, but it's like, yeah, you know, you can talk about being happy all you want, but for some people, that's a harder mountain to climb than for others. So we all have a set point. Now, this is interesting. Uh, they say that when it comes to um, circumstances, that only makes up about 10% of our happiness. 
I find this fascinating because if you're like me, I sort of put 100% of my hopes for happiness on my circumstances, right? You know, if I get a raise, if I get a different job, if we move to a different place, if things go better, right? If things work out, if, you know, if we just got along better, if the Cowboys won the Super Bowl, like whatever it might be, if these circumstances work out in my life, then, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be happy, you know, and it's, it's going to be awesome. And so, so, you know, some of you, you're single right now, you're holding out for Mr. and Mrs. Wright, and you're thinking, you know, if I just want when I find them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It's going to come together. So you sit in the coffee shop and you start praying like, God, may the next guy that walk in be the guy. I'm going to believe. I'm going to, this is, I'm, I'm going to do the fleece. I'm just going to trust you. May the next guy that walks in just be, may, may he be the one, the guy. I'm believing. I'm living in faith. Pastor Mac told me to. I, I, I'm living in faith. And so, and then that guy walks in and he's old enough to be your dad. And you're like, God, the next guy that walks in, will he be the one? You know, and you just, you just start holding on to these, like, if this just changes in my life, then I'll be happy. But the research says no. The research says it'll only affect your happiness about 10%. Now, you got to, in fact, you might want to sit with that this week because I've been sitting with this thought for a long time. Like that, it really rattles you when you think about that. You know what they say? You fall in love, you get married, awesome. That'll give you a boost of happiness for about two years max. <laughs> Everybody's laughing because they know that's true. And then, uh, <laughs> Don't laugh too loud. It depends on who you're sitting next to right now. Um, they say, you know, if you, if you get a financial increase, you know, that, that's awesome. But, but usually what happens in a financial increase, many of you have experienced this in your life, we just adjust to it and absorb it into our lives. And even though you make a lot more money now, some of you, than you used to, what, what, it's just kind of money goes in, money goes out. And in the end, you're like, where, where did it all go? Like, what happened? Um, and so, you know, you get the new car. It's amazing. It's awesome. It can boost your happiness, you know, until the payment comes around. Then it starts taking a dent out of your happiness. So life circumstances, they say, only accounts for 10% of our happiness. Now, some people face tragedies, incredible loss. But still, they would say the actual tragedy only affects their happiness 10%. How they deal with it for the next 20 years, that can affect their happiness radically. But they, the social scientists make a distinction between the event and the circumstance and its immediate nature and the way we process it. And so this is... This is the whole point of this, going through this chart, is this. 40%, they say, of our happiness is, what, is what's based on intentional activity. So you and I, while we can't control our set point genetically, while we, we can't always control our life circumstances, what happens to us, they say 40% of our happiness, of our sort of joy and sense of peace and well-being, is a result, a direct result of intentional activity that we can engage in. In other words... Wherever our set point is, whatever our circumstances are, you and I have 40% control over the next few weeks of what kind of Christmas we're going to experience in our lives. Think about that. And it's not based on whether your family come in or whether your kids get home or whether, you know, there's, there's uh, every, t- every chair is full at the, at the table at, at Christmas meal or whether you get the thing you're wanting for Christmas because that's just about 10% of it. It's really based on the, the habits that we choose to engage in over the next few weeks. Interesting, right? So Paul, what you see him doing is engaging in these habits that even social science kind of affirms all these centuries later, and you see it again and again. One of the number one things social science talks about is uh, uh, worry is a huge uh, killer of joy in our lives, self-ruminating, overthinking things, and continuing to fret about it. And so Paul, very next sentence, he says, always be joyful, right? Always be full of joy. Okay, easier said than done. And then look at what he says. Verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. 
It says instead pray about everything. So you replace your worry with prayer. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done and then you will experience God's peace. So here's what I've seen in my own life. Like this all sounds really good, churchy. Yeah, you know, don't worry, pray, everything's cool. But then if you're like me, what you do is like you worry about something. You worry about your finances, your future. You worry about retirement. You worry about like what's going on with your kids, what's going on in their, your kids' lives. And so you'll pray about that. God, you know, I need to stop worrying about this. I'm going to give that to you, and, and I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Some of you may even say, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm done. I'm done. And if you're like me, like 10 minutes later, you're, you don't even realize that you're doing it. You're nuts, you're, you're, your stomach's back in knots, and you're worrying about it again. How many of you know what I'm talking Like, it's just sort of all there, or tomorrow, or next week, and it's all kind of back in, and you're like, yeah, I wasn't going to do that, but here I am. Like, okay, it didn't work. Like, what am I supposed to do? Well, I think the difference in what Paul's describing is Paul's talking about a continual action. He's not talking about a one-time thing or every now and then. He's saying... Every time you realize that you're worrying about something, every single time, you, take, you pause for a moment and just consciously, out loud, or is in a prayerful moment at work, whatever, you just give that to God. You replace your worry with prayer, but listen, again and again and again and again and again, and if you do it long enough, it starts to become a habit. And when something starts to become a habit, now that, I think, has the power to change our lives. I've seen it in my own life, and then he says what happens. You start to experience the peace of God. So here's what I've been trying to do with worry in my own life. Any of you remember Hot Potato, the game Hot Potato as a kid? Any of you? A few of you? Not, man, what was Hot Potato not big down in the Austin area or what? You know, like hey, up in Amarillo, man, we played Hot Potato. You were too busy playing Spin the Bottle. That's what's going on around here, right? Like, like we play a hot potato, so hot potato, all the kids sit in a circle, and you know, you get a little bean bag or potato head or whatever, and that's that's the potato, and you throw it. And if it lands in your lap, you gotta get rid of that thing because when the music's they're playing music, so when the music stops, if a hot potato's in your lap, boom, you're out. Right? So you gotta get rid of it as fast as you can. You don't mess around with hot potato. And I started thinking about, I think what Paul's saying is this. Take your fear, take your worry, and you play hot potato with it with God. When you start worrying about your retirement, you say, God, I give that to you. I don't want that. You know, you start worrying about the future. I reject, I reject that, God, I'm giving that to you. God's going to be up all night anyway. He can handle it, right? You know, like something else lands in your lap. You say, God, I give you that. I start worrying about my, my, my future, my, my organization, my supervisor, my boss, the business climate, the few, you know, future trade deals with China. I start going down the road, right? Like all these things that, let's be honest, you and I have no control over. What do you do? You say, God, I give you that. I'm not going to carry that, okay? I'm not going to own that, you know? Like, like I remember my first thought when our daughter, daughter was born, and I put her in the, in the car seat, our first child. I drove her home. It was this amazing moment, and as I'm walking her into our house, carrying her, it was actually freezing cold, and, and we're walking into the house, it dawns on me like, I got to start saving for college. <laughs> and that's where it starts, right? Like every parent knows, like, you know, I'm on my stomach because I'm already like, I got to, how much does college cost? Well, don't go to that website. That will kill your buzz right there. I promise you. Like whatever joy you got in your life, don't look at the college cost website. Let's thank scholarship. Let's thank scholarship. Okay, so anyway, no, I'm kidding. But, you know, I, I, that's, that's where we live, right? So here's the habit, God. I give it to you. I give it to you. I give it to you. I'm not going to let that sit in my lap. I'm just going to give it back to you. You develop a habit. I think God's peace grows in our hearts and lives. So the next couple of weeks we have an opportunity. When the worry starts to creep in about Christmas and gifts and packages and what's not done and all that, every time it lands in your lap, just think hot potato. I give that back to you, God. I'm giving that to you. I don't, I'm not going to carry that. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not in control of that. God, I give that to you. Develop that habit 
And it's helped me in a significant way, I think, just have a little more peace in my life. Here's another principle that'd be really helpful for us to just find some more joy in this kind of season when we're sort of holidays and confused. And that is um, to find the awesome. To find the awesome in our lives and to engage in a habit where we really seek to find um, the awesome. Because there's awesome things that are happening all around us in our lives. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of, it's easy to walk into a, a, a pantry full of food and look around, and what does every teenager say? There's nothing to eat, right? Or ladies, to walk into a closet that's filled with clothes and shoes. You thought you were getting off the hook, didn't you? Right? All this amazing stuff, right? And we walk out, and what, what do we say sometimes? There's nothing to wear. I got nothing to wear. Or guys, to sit down and turn on your television with 575 channels, and scroll through, and then what do we say? Like, there's nothing to watch. There's nothing good. It's amazing how good we can be at finding nothing where there is so much of something. And so if I'm not intentional about finding the awesome in my life, I tend to exaggerate the not awesome in my life, and that's not healthy for anybody. Neuroscientists have, 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 have done research. I don't know how they, how they get to this conclusion, but they say that we have about 50,000 thoughts a day. 50,000 thoughts a day. Now, those thoughts affect every cell in our body at some level. Because you think about how your thoughts, your stress level can affect your heart rate, your blood pressure, everything, right? Like, we're all interconnected as people. 50,000 thoughts a day. Now, here's what I thought was fascinating. 90% of our thoughts are repeats from yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. 90% of our thoughts, they say, are just, it's where we're, we get in these um, spirals, Right? And we're just in the spiral, you know, and it's the same stuff again and again and again. And so we, if we begin to change our habits, we can start to change how we think about things in a significant way that starts to then influence each day of our lives. I think about the Cowboys. I'm a Cowboys fan, and, uh, you know, so Tony Romo gets hurt. Uh, preseason and um, you know when this happens I was really frustrated uh, any of you Cowboys fans come on I mean you gotta you gotta give me this moment because when I do this in Las Vegas everybody like three people are like what Who, you know but I do it anyway I've converted a few um, <laughs> so you know I love Tony Romo Tony Romo is my guy Tony Romo, man, he's carried, you know, that, look, yeah, yeah, he never won a Super Bowl, whatever, but, you know, there were, there were seasons he was the only good player on our team. And, you know, like, he carried us, right? He was there, you know. So, I, anyway, I, I, I love Tony Romo. He was, and then he gets down, he goes down, he's hurt. I'm like, oh, this is, this is just another year, 20 years of junk, 20 years of losing. Here we go again, right? Like, come on, man. You know, so... I started going down the hole, the rabbit hole, right? The negative rabbit hole. And I'm in it now, man. Like every, it's going to be bad. I'm not even watching football this year. I hate football. I'm, I'm watching college football only. I'm done. You know, like, like this is not going to be good, right? Because you just, in there, everybody's like, there's Dak Prescott. I'm like, he's a rookie. It's not going to matter. He's going to be horrible for two or three years, and if he's ever any good, then, you know, maybe he'll get traded off to somebody else the way we do things, and who knows what will happen, right? So, so I, I come in, so the first game happens, and we lose. And you know what? Just reinforcement. Yep, yep, see, there you go. That's what we do, doing what we do. We lose. We're losers. I took my Tony Romo jersey, and I put it in the back of my closet. 
I'm done. Second game, and I still watched them, you know, second game comes along, and, and we actually won that game. And I'm like, well, that's better than losing. <laughs> but it isn't going to matter. Third game comes along, we win again, right? And I'm like, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's all right, you know. I mean, you know, the fourth game, and then the fifth game. And, and it's funny, you know, the early games, I was like, I hate this Dak Prescott kid. By game two, I'm like, okay, you know, I don't hate him, hate him. You know, I mean, he won a game. More than the other backups have ever done. <laughs> game three, I'm like, yeah, he's all right. You know, game four, game five, you know, then we, we get seven, game eight, game nine. And now I got to tell you, man, now I'm, I'm walking around, I'm like, Dak Prescott's my man. <laughs> that guy, I, I loved him in college. <laughs> I was following the draft. I was saying all along they should have drafted him, right? Everybody said we were done back in the preseason, and I was the one saying, no, this could be the year. But it's amazing how when you get in a rut and you're thinking, it takes 12 wins to get you out of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's a long road before you start to change how you think. Now, that's real in life, isn't it? When we get in negative spirals in our lives, it's really hard to get out of that. And the monotony of life can make it hard. Tony Romo talks about, or Tony Evans <laughs> talks about, <laughs> Tony Evans has this great illustration about the monotony of life. He says, you know, just think about it. Like, you get up in the morning, get out of the same old bed, you hit the same old alarm clock, you know, you go to the same old bathroom, get the same old toothbrush, brush your same old teeth, go to the same old kitchen, have the same old breakfast, get in the same old car, drive the same old way to work, see the same old people, deal with the same old gossip, same old problems, same old issues, same old stuff. At the end of the day, you drive back to the same old house, walk in the same old door, kiss the same old spouse, eat the same old food, sit down, watch the same old TV shows. You know, at the end of that, you go to the same old bedroom, spouse comes into the same old bedroom, you climb in the same old bed, you dim the same old lights, you ask the same old question, you get the same old answer. <laughs> then you go to bed, and the next day the alarm goes off and you start all over again, right? Like, welcome to life. And the monotony can just beat it out of you, and the joy can just... I remember when I turned 40, I remember looking at this couch that was sitting in our living room, and I was so depressed. And this was a new couch. This was an amazing couch. And this is what, I remember standing there, and Lori's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, my, is this the last couch we're ever going to buy? <laughs> you ever had this moment, some of you? You're not old enough yet. Because my parents, dude, they had the same couch for 30 years, right? You know, and I'm like, is this it? Is this over? Like, I'm never going to get a new couch. This is the one. How much do you like it? I got one foot in the grave right now, standing in the 40, standing in our living room. This is it. This is my life. <laughs> so Paul challenges us that even when the monotony is going on, even when things can stay the same, even when it's frustrating, even when it's messy, we can replace worry with prayer. And look at this. We can find the awesome. Philippians 4.8. It says, now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. You think about your thought life. I think about my thought life. How much do we really say, look, I'm not going to think about that. That's not true or that's not pure or that's not admirable or that's not lovely. That's not worthy of praise. That's not excellent. Right? I'm not gonna, I mean, I still wrestle a lot. My thought life goes all over the place. 
right? And usually not to things that are positive, lovely, good, excellent, worthy of praise. How much healthier would we be, though, if we got intentional about, being, about developing a habit of editing our thoughts? When we start going down a road of all these things that may be negative or out of control in our world that we can't control, and we focus on God and who he is and the things we can actually have an impact on, and we start finding the awesome. One guy launched a website. He just started looking around for awesome things in his life. And he, he, awesome things are all around us. He said, uh, he gave an example of some awesome things. He said, for instance, when that social event that you felt like you were going to have to go to, that Christmas party, right, gets canceled. You know what I'm talking about. If that happens to you in the next couple of weeks, everybody's going to be like, awesome. We got a free night, right? Or when, you know, your guests come over for dinner, and at the end of dinner, they help you clean up the dishes even when you tell them not to. Because everybody's like, no, no, don't clean up the dishes. We got, but it's always, come on, man. It's always awesome when everybody comes around and the dishes are done in five minutes. Awesome. He says, when, when you're eating a popsicle and you get to the last bite and you, you get the popsicle completely in your mouth without any of it breaking off of the stick. Awesome. When your shoes lay, are laced up, are tied just in such a way that you know, you can, you can slip them on without having to untie them and tie them. You can wear them comfortably, and you can slip them off without having to untie them. Awesome. When the lawnmower starts on the first pull. Come on. That's awesome. We can find it every day. And so you get up out of the same old bed tomorrow, you and I face a choice. How are we going to handle our thought life? Are we going to get out of that same old bed, go to the same old bathroom? We, you know, we can say, God, look, thank you for this day. Thank you that I get to be alive. Thank you that I get to face another day. You brush those teeth or those dentures. God, thank you that I got something to brush. I'm grateful for that. And thank you for this toothbrush. And thank you for this experience. Thank you for electricity and for warmth. You go into the kitchen, you get your same old Cheerios. But hey, you have Cheerios. There are people in the world who don't have the luxury of breakfast. So God, I thank you that I get to enjoy that in my life. You get in your car, your car starts, even if it's not your favorite car, even if you want to upgrade your car, it'll change your perspective if every day you start giving thanks for your car, what you have, what God has given you. That's why Paul says, replace your worry with prayer. Notice he says, give thanks and give thanks. In fact, another place in the Bible it says, what's God's will for you in Christ Jesus? It says, give thanks in every circumstance. So you're right now, you're like, God, what's your will for me? What do you want me to do? Do you take this job? Do I marry this girl? Do I date this guy? What's your will? You know, you want me to move to this place? You want me to do that? Well, I don't know about all those things, but I can promise you this. God has been crystal clear about his will in a lot of other areas of our life. And one thing he says is that this is God's will for you. Here it is. Some of you, you came to church going, God, speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. Show me what your will is. Here it is. Give thanks in every circumstance. Just give thanks. Be thankful. It'll start changing your perspective. You see that same old spouse? You give thanks for him or her. Start changing your perspective, right? You see the same old situation at work, but you give thanks because you have a job. A lot of people don't have a job. You and I can always look at others and find reasons to be discouraged or frustrated, but it's so much more healthy if we choose to look the other way and find reasons to be grateful and thankful. And so we face a choice. When that worry hits your lap this next week, play hot potato with it. God, I give it back to you. I'm not going to carry it. It may not work the first time. You may not feel anything different the second time, the third time. But I, in my own life, when I start to develop a habit, that's where the, that's where the power is. 
because the habit leads me to a life lived more like this and less like this, right? A life lived with more surrender and less trying to hold on to everything. A life that says, God, it's all yours, you know, and I give it to you and I'm gonna let you carry it. And then when I face different things in my life, I can find the awesome. Thirdly, you can just practice your faith. Practice your faith. And so I love this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. So again, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to practice it. And Paul says, you put it into practice, that's where it will have impact. So I started, uh, one of the things that frustrates me the most is driving. How many of you get frustrated when you're driving in traffic, right? I know you got some pretty hairy traffic sometimes around here. Like, we have some pretty bad traffic different seasons. And it, I don't do well in traffic. My inner pastor does not well up when I am in traffic. Something else is welling up, but it's not, not the inner pastor, okay? So, in fact, I, I drive a, a, an old Mustang, and uh, I've got um, a nice dent in the, in the center of the steering wheel where... Um, I let the steering wheel have it in the midst of traffic, right? So uh, before you lose all respect for me, um, well, I'm not going to say anything else. So I'm driving along. I'm not doing well. There's traffic. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I don't like being late. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I was raised by a dad in Texas who taught me that, look, on time is 10 minutes early. Everything else is late. Right, so, so it drives me crazy, right, when I think I'm late and then I'm in traffic and now I'm stuck and I'm going to be late. And anyway, and I started thinking one day when I'm stressed and angry and mad and frustrated, I thought, you know, this is not what God wants for me. I'm supposed to rejoice always, Pastor Judd. I'm supposed to be full of joy. I'm not full. I'm full of a lot of things right now, not, not joy. So I said, well, what, what would it look like if I started acting like a person at peace? Like, what would that look like right now? And so this is what I started doing. First, I thought, well, you know, if I was at peace, I'd probably roll the windows down and just take a, take a deep breath. It was a nice day outside, just take in a little bit of nature. I'm not going anywhere, just sitting in traffic. So I rolled the windows down and I took a deep breath. I said, well, if I was a person at peace right now, um, I would, I'd probably like have some great music on, maybe even some worship music or something and just sort of sit in the moment because I may not get a, a, another still moment all day. And so here it is. I've got one. So, you know, I put some music on. I got some tunes on. I'm sitting there. I got the windows down. I'm like, man, this is, you know, if I was a person at peace, I would probably wave at somebody right now. You know, we don't really wave. Like, that's what I love about being back in Texas. Everybody's like, hi, how you doing? Hi, how you doing? It's shocking for a minute because that's how I was raised. But, you know, in Las Vegas, people are like, what's wrong with you? Don't wave at me, you freak. You know, like, it's funny, my, my neighbors were all like, that's it. Um, you know, anything else gets weird. So, but, you know, I start waving at people. I'm like, how you doing? What's going on? How's it going? That's what a man at peace would do. I started thinking, you know, a man at peace would, would let somebody else in who's trying to cut in right now, tried to get up here a little further and then cut over into my lane. That's what a man at peace would do. I didn't do that. <laughs> I only go so far, right? You know, I'm like, no way, sucker, you're behind me. But, but that's what a man at peace would do. And, and here's what I found. When I started acting like a man at peace in a very unpeaceful situation, I started to feel peace. I started to feel peaceful, right? I started to put into practice my faith into actions, and I let my actions dictate my feelings rather than always letting my feelings dictate my actions. And so that's where I think when Paul gives us this picture into his habits. 
He's fixing his thoughts. He's replacing worry with prayer. He's giving thanks every day. He's putting it into practice. And that's how he can be chained to a Roman guard in the middle of a mess, unsure about his future, unsure about what's going to happen to him, unsure about the churches that he loved and cared about. And he can still say, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Always be full of joy. It's the habits that really change our lives. We can affect up to 40% of our happiness. And the person that did this the most powerfully for me is my dad. And my dad was a, a World War II vet, born and raised here in Texas, Amarillo boy, and a guy that um, was a master sergeant in the Army, lied about his age so that he could get in the, into, the, into the Army like a lot of guys did. A lot of you are nodding your dads and grandpas and, you know, like a lot of that generation. Fought all the way up into the Battle of the Bulge, was a, was a tank commander, and um, then later uh, started a refrigeration business, a, a commercial uh, refrigerating business uh, out of a basement that he led for the rest of his life, you know, a good salt of the earth kind of person, was an elder in our local church, was a great guy, um, was an amazing dad. And I got a call a while back that he was sick, wasn't looking good for him. He was 87 years old. And uh, so Lori and I, we got on a plane, we flew from Las Vegas to back to Texas and went to see him. They said, you know, this, this is probably it, right? So we go in and, and he's, he's laying on this bed and he's, he's not conscious, he's not uh, He's not really communicating to anybody, but he has these moments where he kind of comes in and out, and all of a sudden he's lucid again. And, and he has this moment where he looks up at me, and he gets this ornery smile on his face. And I, I'm telling you, I knew in the moment, like, he knows, he knows we're here. You know, he knows we're here. And this is, this is what he says to me. It's about time to wrap this up. <laughs> no lie. Like, this is how a master sergeant in the Army gets ready to die. You know, we're, we're done here. This hurts. This is no fun anymore. Let's wrap this up. He told me once, he said, you know, God has a way of getting you ready to die. And he said, for me, it, he goes, I'm ready. My, my mom had already passed away. They were married over, I don't know how long, 60 years, you know. And so he was ready. He's like, everybody I know and love is dead. I'm, it hurts to be alive. I'm old. Nothing works anymore. So it's amazing how God gets you ready to a place where you're ready. And so... He was out after that. And a little while later, like one, he set up, he says, it's about time to let her rip. And he's out. And I knew what he's, what he's getting at. I'm like, all right. A little while later, his defibrillator would shock him, and he thought it was restarting his heart, like it was keeping him alive. And it would hurt. It would zap him, and he'd sit up out of just being out of it. One time he sat up, and he looks at me, and I'm sitting there right there in the room, and he goes, he goes listen. You better get that doctor in the room and tell him to turn this thing off. He thought it was like restarting his heart. He said, look, I paid him a lot of money, and I should be dead by now. <laughs> he's, he's out. Like, yes, sir. But I had this moment where the doctor said, look, you need to go in and say your goodbyes. Some of you had this moment with family members and loved ones. And so I didn't know what to do. How do you face that moment? And I would go in, and you know, I'm holding my dad's hand. He's a tough guy, tough man, but he was a great dad. And I remember just thanking him for, for being faithful, for teaching me what it was to be a man, for teaching me what it was to be faithful to your spouse over all those years, to love your kids. And he loved me through drug addiction. I was a, I was a mess, you know, and I went through a four-year addiction that just about killed everybody in my family before God rescued me out of that. Um, and so I remember just sitting there and, and, and beside his bed thanking him for being faithful, for never giving up on me for always praying for me, for always being kind of that stable voice in my life, for always being, you know, just a wonderful human being and a godly father. 
And he had this moment where he looked up at me, and all of a sudden there was just clarity in his eyes. And he smiled, and he said, you're good kids. My sister was there with me. And he says, um, I'm going for a walk in the sunshine. I'll see you on the other side. Those were the last words my father ever spoke to me. But I'll tell you, it was so powerful because here was a man who lived a lot like the Apostle Paul. He, didn't, he wasn't rich. He didn't have all the things the world had to offer, but he was joyful and he was happy, even up to his last words where he's like, I'm going to a better place. It's going to be all right. Why? Because he had developed these simple habits of finding the awesome in things, replacing worry with prayer, not holding on to things. And I don't know if the war did that to him, if just being a follower of Jesus did that to him, but his vision of a happy life wasn't about having the biggest house and all these things. It was if you got health, if you got shelter, if you got your family and loved ones around you, you don't have any problems. Everything else is a situation, is what my dad said. You can manage a situation. You don't have a real problem. You got your health, you got your basics covered, and you got your family. And man, for a lot of us, the things we're worried about right now, when you really think about it, you say, yeah, I don't really have any problems. I just have some situations. And maybe I'm giving them too much of my time and my attention. And so I think of him. I think of what Paul says. And I know this holiday, it could be hard. Some of you lost loved ones and you're going into holiday and they're not there, they're not at your side, but listen, whether they're there or not, you and I, we choose, we affect up to 40% of our happiness over the next few weeks. We can choose to replace that worry with prayer. We can choose to find the awesome and we can choose to live really with the priorities of what matters most. I remember walking out of that hospital room after my dad uh, said those words and a few days later he passed away in hospice. And I remember like my whole world got reorientated because you realize so much of what I've given myself to just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Because when you come to your last days, what matters is your relationship with God, your relationship with other people, those you love, and those that gather around your hospital bed. Like that's what matters the most. And if it matters the most then, God, help it matter more in my heart and life today. Help it matter more in my heart and life this Christmas. Help me value. Look, the house may not be perfect. The people in it may not be perfect, but they're your imperfect people. They're your family. They're your gift from God. Treasure them. Value them. Because in the end, it's God and people that really matter. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you've never really crossed that line of faith in your life, and I'd love to just give you that opportunity to reach out to Christ and trust him in your life. Become a follower of Jesus today. So I'm going to ask all of you to please bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, you can just repeat this prayer after me, just in your heart, in your mind, silently as you sit there, in your own words, whatever works for you. Just say, dear God, I thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again. Forgive me for my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me face the challenges I'm up against. God, I surrender to you. In Christ's name. I want to ask you just to remain in a, in a spirit of prayer. Because it's a holy moment that we're in right now. 
we know that holy means set apart. Set apart for God's purposes. If you just prayed that prayer with Judd and committed your life to Christ, then just very, very briefly, but, but very, very surely, I want to make sure that you understand this is the most important moment of your life. It's the greatest moment. And, it, and it's this moment that God will use to build every other moment on top of and out of. And so if that's your moment right now, I want to just say a couple of things to you very, very quickly before we go. First of all, we want to offer ourselves to you as a, as a family of faith, as a, as a place to belong. We want to help in this new relationship with God in this faith journey. And so if you'll take the program that you got when you came in this morning and open it up to where it says it's the Connect card and just fill out the information that's asked for there and about, I don't know, a third of the way down, you'll see there's a place to indicate I've committed my life to Christ this week. And as you fill that out, just take that card and, and tear it off at the perforation right down the middle of the program. And before you leave, I want to ask you, for your sake as well as everybody else around you, just hand that completed card to one of our ushers. They've got the, the blue LHC shirts on. And just make, make a brief moment to make a personal connection because that's what this is all about. It's a personal connection with God and a personal connection with the family of faith. And then the second thing, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in this sacred moment, I want to just ask you if you would mark this moment. Just, just raise your hand and if that was your prayer today and you meant it, then just raise your hand right where you're sitting, quietly but, but unmistakably, and hold it up for a moment. And as you do that, you, you stamp this moment in your life to know that it's real, that God did it and you responded, period. And it's done forever. But you also stamp this moment in the life of this church. Because there's nothing more important to us as a church family than this moment in your life and others like you, one life at a time. And so as a prospective church family, we celebrate that with you. We honor that. And as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and just tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.